Hi there. Welcome to Barbarossa, Apocalypse in the East. I'm your host, Harry Stevens, and today we're going to be covering the events of the Eastern Front from July 24th to August 6th. I don't have any big news for you, except there's a big portion about the air war coming up, in case that's your thing. Uh, but no, let's get into it. In the last two weeks, Army Group North had great difficulty making progress to the east, as German resources were proving insufficient and Soviet resistance strengthened. The 41st Panzer Corps was about 100 kilometers from Leningrad, while the 56th was far to the south, facing Novgorod. Despite the eagerness of field commanders to attack Leningrad, the OKH was unconvinced. Late on the 23rd of July, they had shifted the focus of operations from the 41st Panzer Corps to the 56th, wanting to clear Soviet forces from their right flank before continuing the main assault. The 56th, with help from the 1st Army Corps, pushed on the gap between the 10th Mechanized and 22nd Rifle Corps. From the 23rd to the 27th, progress was slow, as a steely Soviet defense and poor terrain encumbered movement and created large losses. But by the 27th, the situation had largely been stabilized in the southern sector, and the 16th Army took responsibility for completing the advance to Lake Illiman. By this point, the 30th Army Corps was covering the left flank of the 41st Panzer Corps, freeing it up for further operations in the Leningrad direction, while the 38th cut the last link between Soviet forces in Estonia and the rest of the Red Army. In Estonia, elements of the 26th German Army Corps had pinned most of the 11th Rifle Corps against Lake Pepys, and they were largely destroyed on the, on the 26th of July. Small pockets fought on until July 31st, but they were mostly neutralized. Remaining Soviet forces in Estonia were the 10th Rifle Corps and remnants of the 11th. The 10th retreated towards the coastal region, hoping to protect Soviet naval bases. What was left of the 11th Rifle Corps went east and joined the defense of Narva. An OKH document issued on July 27th laid out the next step for Army Group North. The Panzer Corps would be directed towards Leningrad, while the 16th Army would hold the right flank of Panzer Group 4. The 18th Army would continue its mission in Estonia. Hitler's Fear Directive 34, issued on July 30th, made the choice to encircle rather than capture Leningrad. In effect, this called for the 16th Army and 56th Panzer Corps to push on the right, while the 41st advanced on the left. The two hoped to link up and encircle Soviet forces in the Luga area, from which they could move freely on to Leningrad. However, due to major supply issues in the 16th Army, operations were delayed time and time again. Certain field commanders were outraged by this. At one point, Jörg Reinhardt, commander of the 41st Panzer Corps, threatened to resign. Because of these issues, the German offensive towards Leningrad will actually start just at a time frame for this episode, so we'll hear about that later. On the Soviet side, the Stavka was desperately rebuilding the Northwestern Front. On July 23rd, the Stavka had General Konstantin Pavlovich Piatyshev relieved of command and arrested. The charge was dereliction of duty, which basically meant incompetence. Piatyshev had been responsible for the defense of Luga, which was deemed woefully inadequate. In October, he would be sentenced to 10 years in prison, where he would die in June of 1944. Inspectors conclude that the, the defenses around Luga were, as I said, woefully inadequate, and they ordered large-scale improvements for defenses not just in Luga, but on the Northern Front, on the approaches to Leningrad, and in Leningrad itself. These efforts, particularly those near and inside the city, were somewhat hindered by Clement Voroshilov, who objected to building defenses inside the city for fear that it would spark panic with, by the citizens. 
The Stavka was sending as many reinforcements as they could to the area. By early August, they had dispatched the 34th and 48th armies, only a few weeks old. Together, they include seven rifle divisions, two cavalry divisions, and one tank division. We'll leave the front here. In the south, Soviet forces split in two against Lake Ilmen. Up north, German forces posed to strike Leningrad. And in Estonia, just a few rifle corps, shattered by almost a month of fighting, were being taken apart by the 18th Army. Army Group North prepares to strike, and the Dutch Western Front prepares to be struck. Last episode, Army Group Center had conducted powerful strikes that brought them across the Dnieper encircling Soviet forces at Mogilev, and almost encircling three entire armies near Smolensk. The Red Army was desperately trying to hold out as ineffectual counterattacks by newly raised armies to the north and south of Smolensk battered the German lines. Wehrmacht plans called for completing the encirclement of and destroying the 19th, 16th, and 20th armies, while Soviet command demanded that those armies create an impenetrable defense, buying time for a large counteroffensive to destroy German forces in the Smolensk area. On July 24th, Soviet attacks were unsuccessful. Through force of numbers, they managed to achieve some local gains, but were unable to capitalize on them. These armies were made up of poorly trained men and poorly trained officers. Artillery, tanks, and air support were in short supply and poorly coordinated. It also should be noted that at this point, across large fronts, German and Soviet forces were often near equal in manpower. And in many cases, German forces had more operational tanks and planes. This is merely due because of the extent of damage that had been done to the Red Army since the beginning of Barbarossa. Despite all of this, Timoshenko's reports to the Stavka were pretty rosy. He played up the small gains as well as the impact of the newly deployed Katyusha. Katyusha were truck-mounted rocket artillery. Their distinctive feature was the screaming sound the rockets made when fired, which led German soldiers to dub the Katyusha Stalin's organ. I'll link a recording of the Katyusha firing, and it is terrifying, but they weren't going to win a war or even a battle by themselves. As Soviet attackers threw themselves against German forces, as well as having to fend off Panzer counterattacks, the situation in the pocket, or would-be pocket, was growing more desperate. The left side of the bulge had conducted a fighting retreat to link up with the right side, avoiding being divvied up in the smaller sections, but the link between the bulge as a whole and the main Soviet force was quickly shrinking, as the 39th and 46th Panzer Corps ground their way through the Red Army defenders. A quick note, the 23rd of July saw the creation of a central front situated in the southern portion of what had once been the western front. The western front continued to exist, but it had a reduced area of operations. It consisted of, the central front, consisted of the 13th and 21st armies. On July 30th, the Stavka created the reserve front for many of the newly raised armies. Its area of operations was north of the central front and south of the western front. In the last days of July, as continuing Soviet counterattacks failed to produce meaningful results, Timoshenko, under massive pressure from the Stavka, ordered his subordinates over and over again to attack ferociously. Eventually, these urgings included not so subtly veiled threats. He declared that, and I quote, those guilty of crimes will be punished right up to being handed over to the judgment of a military tribunal, unquote. In this case, crimes here basically meant an inability to successfully carry out the orders given to you. Telling you in detail about each day of Timoshenko's offensive during these last days of July would be unhelpful and kind of a waste of your time. 
The different armies achieved some small gains at a high cost and were unable to build them into something substantive. The greatest achievement was tying up a lot of German forces. Like I said, on the German side, these attacks had slowed their advance and dealt them heavy casualties. Motorized infantry especially suffered, with the 39th Panzer Corps' motorized forces dropping to around a third of their starting strength. They had also forced the Panzer Corps to commit whatever reserves they had, which they didn't have many reserves to start with, and now they were had none. At one point, the 39th Panzer Corps had to send its training brigade into combat. Despite all of this, the Red Army was unable to stop them from closing the Smolensk pocket. On July 26th, the 39th Panzer Corps and elements of the 47th Panzer Corps linked up east of the city. I've also heard that the pocket wasn't closed until July 27th, and I'm unsure if this is maybe because historians disagree over the definition of an encirclement, because here it seems like the initial encirclement wasn't a strictly textbook encirclement. That is, it didn't completely surround it. There was a small corridor for Soviet forces, but German forces on the side of the corridor made this impassable, so no supplies or reinforcements could get through either way. I'm not sure. Whether the 26th or the 27th, it seems like this initial link-up was pretty tenuously held, but it was reinforced in subsequent days, so it was near impossible for Soviet troops to break through. Very difficult, at least. Also on the 26th, German forces finished eliminating the pocket at Mogilev. Soviet forces there, including the 61st Rifle Corps and 20th Mechanized Corps, among others, were largely destroyed. About 35,000 prisoners were taken, with thousands more escaping back to Soviet lines or becoming partisans. The insistence of the Stavka that Soviet troops fight to the last man, even when encircled and without a hope of breaking out, was not, despite what many may think, merely stubbornness or a disregard for the lives of their soldiers. Aside from the basic goal of causing as much damage to German units as possible, kind of ferocious resistance and no surrender attitude was meant to hold up German forces, particularly the infantry. Holding up the infantry would mean that the Panzer forces would have to take on Soviet armies by themselves, which would naturally create increased losses and would also slow down the advance. And although brutal, this, this worked. It's a basic military fact that holding and destroying an encirclement requires many more men than the pocket itself contains. Therefore, merely continuing the fight, regardless of the odds, holds up disproportionate enemy infantry, and they get further and further behind the panda forces. And we saw this at Minsk, uh, we saw this at uh, Bialystok, and we're going to see it elsewhere. At Mogilev, for instance, it took at least three army corps to eliminate the Soviet forces there, denying them frontline vital support. On the northern flank of the sector, July 24th comes just after the German 16th Army had ravaged the 22nd and 27th Armies, inflicting about 50,000 casualties. By July 27th, the 22nd Army had rearranged itself along a line from the Levat River to Lake Devine, which ran through the vital railway hub city, Veliki Luki. Veliki Luki had actually been captured by German forces, but on July 21st, they voluntarily withdrew and Soviet forces reclaimed it. Facing the threat of Soviet counterblows to the north and south of Smolensk, the 56th and 57th Panzer Corps transferred eastward to ward off a breakthrough. This allowed Soviet forces on the northwestern flank to establish strong positions that would hold for several weeks. On the southern flank, German forces were much worse off. German armor was not present, meaning even the relatively weak 4th, 13th, and 21st armies were a rather serious threat. 
These forces, now comprising the Central Front, were attempting to relieve Mogilev and cut the supply lines to Panzer Group II. However, this was not possible following the arrival of significant German infantry on their lines. By late July, the Central Front had exhausted what little of its forces remained, leaving them open to destruction if the Germans turned their attention in that direction. Meanwhile, German command was planning its next move. It was clear to high command, and frankly any astute observer, that the Smolensk pocket would take a significant amount of time to close. And while the Smolensk pocket was being cleared, German forces would have to deal with concerted Soviet counterattacks. And once they had managed to finish off the pocket, there were Soviet armies preparing both in-depth defenses and offenses in the approaches to Moscow. These facts only heightened the need many felt in high command to pivot panzer forces to the north and south. Hitler had already made this a reality with his Fuhrer Directive 33, issued on July 19th. This stipulated that the panzer groups currently operating in Army Group Center would be shifted, with Panzer Group 2 heading south and Panzer Group 3 to the north. The decree allowed for a continued advance by Army Group Center after clearing encircled forces in and around Smolensk, but without panzer forces, this was practically impossible. Which essentially meant that if and when they cleared Smolensk, they would basically be on pause until there had been major successes in Ukraine and around Leningrad. We'll finish up the sector for this episode by describing the destruction of the Smolensk pocket in operations south of Smolensk during the first week of August. By August 1st, the Smolensk pocket, as well as the forces within it, had significantly shrunk. Its dimensions were about 20 by 30 kilometers. German forces manning the encirclement include elements of the 39th and 47th Panzer Corps, as well as two Army Corps. Prior to the creation of the encirclement, Soviet troops had strenuously attempted to hold open a link between the bulge and the main force. Having failed at this, efforts now turned to organizing a breakout, attempting to get as many troops out of the pocket as quickly as possible. Late on August 1st, the 16th and 20th armies received Stavka approval, expending the last of their ammunition and fuel and leaving behind much of their remaining heavy equipment, around 50,000 Red Army soldiers, fought ferociously to break out and found their way back to Soviet lines. This began... August 4th, and trickles continued until about August 7th. For all those still trapped in the pocket, they could either choose to go down fighting, as many did, or surrender. German forces finished liquidating the pocket by August 6th. On Army Group Center's southern flank, the first week of August saw Guderian's 2nd Panzer Group shift its efforts south and smashed into the 20th Army near Roslavl. The 20th Army had been part of Timoshenko's counteroffensives, and these exhausted much of its strength. But the position of the 28th Army, which plunged significantly west of German forces, was dangerous, and German command decided that it needed to be eliminated. The 3rd and 4th Panzer Divisions, under the 2nd Panzer Group, positioned on the left flank of the 28th Army, began their assaults on August 1st. The pair quickly broke through the 8th and 148th Rifle Divisions, and the infantry of the 7th Army Corps followed behind. Two Soviet cavalry divisions were overrun and destroyed. On the right flank of the 28th Army, the German 9th Army Corps began a southern thrust. Vladimir Kachalov, the 28th Army's commander, issued detailed instructions to his subordinates on how to respond, but the German advance continued to rest. His forces simply did not have the equipment, experience, and manpower to halt the advance. By the end of August 2nd, the 4th Panzer Division was within 15 kilometers of Roslavl, which was also an important transport point. The 9th Army Corps was making progress as well. On August 3rd, Roslavl was taken, 
with some additional advances by the 3rd and 4th Panzer Divisions. The 24th Panzer Corps linked up with the 9th Army Corps, trapping much of the 28th Army. The Stavka, acting with surprising speed, worked around the clock to organize a breakout for Kapsalov's force. Unfortunately, these units were simply too weak for a large breakout, and the pocket was eliminated by August 6. Kachilov himself perished in the fighting. Turned Army Group South We last saw Panzer Group 1 pivot south from its positions near Kiev, threatening to encircle a huge pocket of Soviet forces from the 6th and 12th Armies west of the Dnieper River. Those same Soviet forces were attempting a withdrawal, which was looking more and more unlikely. The 40th Panzer Corps made up the Northern Panzer and was pounding on the 2nd Mechanized Corps. German forces directly across from the 6th and 12th Armies mostly lacked armor, but Soviet weakness and an ongoing withdrawal allowed for a general push to the east. The arrival of German infantry in the Kiev area freed up the 3rd and 14th Panzer Corps, which had been defending positions up to now. Beginning around July 25th, these two corps began racing down to aid the 48th. Once these newly freed forces joined the battle, the German advance became a veritable route. Soviet mechanized forces turned northeast to face the 14th and 48th Panzer Corps, but were too weak and disorganized to halt them. By July 31st, the 14th Panzer Corps had seized positions behind the densely clustered Soviet forces near Uman. Soviet forces had been attacking where they could, but as we've heard time and time again, were too weak and too disorganized to have any effect. On August 2nd, the 1st Mountain Division and 9th Panzer Division linked up, sealing the Uman pocket. As always, Soviet commanders ordered fierce resistance and attempted to organize a breakout, but there was little hope of this. By August 6th, despite a stoic defense, the Uman pocket had been liquidated, capturing over 100,000 Red Army troops, killing or wounding an equal number. Breakouts from the encirclement were rather small compared to Smolensk, with about 10% or maybe 10,000 men making it out and back to Soviet lines. Since Army Group South Infantry had been present during the Uman operation, the Panzer forces were able to quickly resume operations after the pocket was established. The 3rd Panzer Corps, which had little to do in Uman by the time it had completed its trip, turned east. It captured Kirovograd on August 5th, today known as Kropovninsky. The 14th Panzer Corps began a southern push, hoping to begin an encirclement operation against retreating Soviet forces. Those Soviet forces were retreating into South Ukraine, near the Romanian zone of operations. While German attacks near Oman had successfully capitalized on Soviet weakness to destroy the 6th and 12th armies, the stated goal of clearing all Red Army forces west of the Dnieper was unachieved. However, with Soviet forces in a disorganized route, unconnected and lacking armor, German forces had an easy opportunity to exploit Soviet weakness and finish these encirclements. That brings us to the end of the ground warfare section. However, I found some new and really good sources for the air war. So let's look at the air war from beginning of Barbarossa to where we are now. During the first months of the war, Luftwaffe statistics reported that they had destroyed 7,500 Soviet planes. This is very likely an exaggeration, but it is not a wild overstatement of the realities on the ground. Soviet statistics across roughly the same period show frontline strengths going from 10,000 to 2,500. As a caveat to that, a large portion of that 7,500 lost planes may be from mechanical breakdowns. Thousands and thousands of Soviet planes before the war were basically unflyable due to mechanical issues, but they were not marked as such. So part of that decrease may be a recognition of that. Even still, Soviet losses were no less than 50% of frontline strength. 
On the other hand, Luftwaffe losses were also severe. After a month of combat, slightly under half of Luftwaffe aircraft on the Eastern Front had been destroyed or damaged. On both sides, whole units had been reduced to just a few men. The Soviet 410th Bomber Squadron arrived on the front on July 5th with 38 aircraft. Within three weeks, they were down to five working planes. On the German side, within three weeks of fighting, Luftwaffe Fighter Group 51 had lost 89 BF-109s. As much as we do and should talk about the problems the Luftwaffe was having, the Red Air Force was in a far more desperate state. Their losses in the early part of the war had robbed them of their numerical advantages, while the Luftwaffe retained their superiority in pilot skill and aircraft quality. By mid-July, Luftwaffe II enjoyed a 2-to-1 advantage in aircraft against the shattered forces of the Soviet Western Front. One of, if not the biggest problem for the Red Air Force, was the total inability of their fighters, or for that matter, their fighter pilots, to take on the Germans. There's a siren outside, so forgive it if you hear that. The standard German fighter, the BF-109, was one of the most advanced fighters in mass production and service at that time. And it was superior to nearly all Soviet frontline designs. The Luftwaffe was at this point a volunteer organization that hand-selected its pilots and crews who themselves underwent rigorous training. So these men were skillful and enthusiastic and had high morale. Most units were led by battle-hardened aces who had cut their teeth in Poland, France, Britain, and as far back as the Spanish Civil War. In comparison, the Red Air Force was comparatively an unprofessional organization. Due to rapid expansion and purges, most officers were pretty new to their posts. Most, the vast majority, had been there less than a year, and many of them had little experience actually flying. Pilot training was pretty laughable. The vast majority of Soviet fighters were outdated I-15 and I-16 models. We only hoped to take on a BF-109 if they got lucky or if the Soviet pilot decided to ram. Many of the experienced Soviet pilots were held back by the aircraft and had been killed in the slaughter of those first few weeks. And it was a slaughter. Soviet fighters were massacred in the thousands, on the ground and in the air. Eventually, they were so sparse that bombers had to go out unescorted, where they too would be shot down in droves. Without fighters, German bombers and ground attack aircraft could target Red Army forces almost unopposed. Lacking sufficient anti-air weapons, Soviet troops could only fire volleys of small arms fire, rifles and machine guns, at low-flying Luftwaffe planes. While this boosted morale, gave soldiers the idea that they, were, that they could do something, and it did occasionally bring down a plane, this was not a real anti-air strategy. Soviet bombers often made a good showing for themselves. Unescorted bomber squadrons conducted near-suicidal runs, flying incredibly low to attack German positions. One spectacular, if rare, success was Soviet bombing raids against Romanian oil fields. On July 13th, six Soviet bombers attacked Romanian oil refineries in Ploesti. They managed to destroy seven storage tanks and 12 rail cars, setting ablaze at least 9,000 tons of oil in a fire that raged for three days. You can't fault them for lack of trying or lack of bravery. However, these successes were far and few between and oftentimes saw tremendous casualties. On the other hand, Luftwaffe bombing strikes were consistently successful in damaging Soviet infrastructure, particularly railway stations, which slowed Soviet troop movements and supplies. On July 25th and 27th, 
German bombers temporarily disabled a vital rail link between Moscow and Leningrad at the town of, Bo of Bologoy. German bombers and Stukas also managed to restrict many Soviet units to only nighttime movement, which was obviously a severe impediment. Just between July 29th and August 4th, Luftflow II reported the destruction of 100 tanks and 1,500 trucks. Although this is probably somewhat of an exaggeration, it still showed the power of unhindered uh, air-to-ground attacks. In light of this desperate situation, how has the Red Air Force survived so long, and how has its strength actually increased week after week? First off, we should assess losses. While it's certainly true that the VVS had taken absurd losses, these are tempered by two main factors. A significant portion of Soviet losses, particularly in the early weeks, came from Luftwaffe attacks on air bases. These attacks destroyed planes on the ground, and they killed comparatively few pilots and aircrew. Most of the aircraft destroyed were outdated machines that stood little chance against the German counterparts, even if they managed to get in the air. So one might argue that given how outdated something like an IM-15 was, it was barely worth the fuel, ammunition, and maintenance costs it required to run it. Of course, if you take that argument to be true, you also have to accept that most of the Soviet fleet was more or less useless from the beginning of the war. So, kind of a double-edged sword. Still, that doesn't explain how the Red Air Force continued not only to put up planes, but in increasing numbers week after week. First of all, only about half of all military planes were based in the Western Soviet Union. The West were split between the Far East, which had about 23%, the southern border areas, about 10%, and the interior military districts, about 14%. Making up that 10,000 planes, this supply became the primary lifeline for the VVS in the early months. A smaller, if still significant, source of aircraft were the stocks of the 100-plus aviation schools. However, the largest source of additional aircraft, at least over 1941 as a whole, was the aviation industry. Already on par, production-wise, with the German aircraft industry in 1940, once war began, Soviet factories went into overdrive. This is obviously looking far beyond July and August, but Soviet factories will churn out almost 16,000 planes in 1941, in comparison to 12,500 made by the Reich. However, as a caveat to this, production at the outset of the war was still in obsolete models. So there had to be a rapid transition, and it also meant that a lot of the aircraft coming out in these early months were these obsolete models that stood a little chance against German fighters. Pilots, the other half, what you need, were supplied by an extremely expedited training process, which guaranteed a steady supply of pilots with at least some training, although against a well-trained German flyer, they would stand very little chance. Nonetheless, between a steady supply of planes and a flood of poorly trained pilots, the Red Air Force was able to rapidly reinforce shattered units, even recreating those that had been annihilated at a breathtaking speed. The 95th Bomber Squadron arrived on the front on July 6th, and within a few weeks existed only on paper. Its remnants were withdrawn and rebuilt, equipped with more modern bombers, and returned to service by the end of August. Indeed, at the peak, the Red Air Force could completely rebuild a unit in about a month to six weeks. Meanwhile, German units had far more difficulty refurbishing their losses. Resources were simply spread too thin to take large units off of duty, and the process of shipping replacement planes was quite difficult. 
As a result, many Luftwaffe units were driven on and on until they could no longer function. This resulted in German aces racking up dozens and dozens of kills, but many were also shot down. You don't hear about the ones that were shot down, of course. You hear about the ones with 100, 200, 300 kills. So think of that what you will. Well, on paper, Germany produced enough aircraft to replace their losses in the east. Produced aircraft were split between the needs of the North African Front, the Eastern Front, and efforts to protect the Reich from British bombers. One hindrance for the Luftwaffe, particularly the bombing section of the Luftwaffe, was a lack of strategic bombers, large, heavy planes that could carry tons and tons of bombs and fly long distances without needing to refuel. The choice not to produce these was a deliberate one, and they had a reason behind it. They figured that given their limited production capacity and the high cost of strategic bombers, it would be better to make more tactical bombers as kind of for short-range missions targeted against smaller targets. And in short, regional wars against Poland and France, this wasn't an issue. Their absence was a bit more keenly felt in the Battle of Britain when they attempted to destroy industry, something that strategic bombers are built for and tactical bombers are not. And against the Soviet Union, their absence gave the USSR a significant safety net as much of Soviet industry was located out of reach of German bombers. Rather, German bombing raids against cities like Leningrad and Moscow had to be done by large groups of medium bombers. These attacks diverted resources from the front, were largely unsuccessful, and exacted too high a toll for small gains. As the Luftwaffe advanced behind the German army, it began to face difficulties basing its aircraft, storing its aircraft. At the outset of the war, the Red Air Force had this problem, with too many planes and too few bases. But now, the severely reduced numbers of the VBS were stationed in established air facilities, deep in the USSR. The Luftwaffe had bombed most of the air bases where they were now housed, air bases which were already rather crude, and many had to be repaired for weeks before they could even be used at this point. As the emphasis on the ground shifted from the center to the flanks in late July, the Luftwaffe was distributed similarly. On July 30th, Hitler shifted Flieger Corps 8 from Luftwaffe 2 to Luftwaffe 1 up north. At that moment, Soviet efforts were largely limited to contesting Luftwaffe attacks in vital sectors, and on occasion, the Red Air Force would gather enough strength to temporarily seize air superiority. On July 25th, the 14th Panzer Division complained of Soviet bomber attacks while they were marching. On the 27th, the 47th Panzer Corps noted, I quote, strong enemy air superiority, many low-level strafes, and bomber attacks, many casualties, unquote. Week by week, we see the balance of power is slowly shifting. We're going to have to wait and see how things change as the focus shifts up north and south. In international news, the U.S. heightened sanctions on Japan in reaction to Japanese expansionism. On the 26th of July, FDR seizes all Japanese assets in the U.S. On the 28th, Japan extends their occupation to southern French Indochina. On August 1st, the U.S. responds by issuing an oil embargo against Japan. Japan has very few natural resources, and it's been heavily reliant on American oil and steel imports to fuel its war machine and general economy. If these things continue to escalate, and Japan faces a total embargo, the entire plan of its government to establish an empire grinds to a halt. So Japan now begins to consider, and has been considering, attacks in Southeast Asia to seize the resources of Indonesia and Malaysia, which would bring it into conflict with Britain, the Dutch, and potentially the United States.
These two weeks have been, to say the least, not good for the Red Army. We've talked a lot about the problems facing the Germans, as we should, but we can't forget that at the moment, the Wehrmacht remains a qualitatively superior force more than capable of defeating whatever piecemeal Soviet forces are being put in front of them. Just in the last two weeks, German forces have captured over 400,000 men at Smolensk and Uman, and that's to say nothing of the wounded or dead in frontline battles. By comparison, since June 22nd, German forces have taken only 250,000 casualties. About 8% of the starting force. I, I understand 250,000 sounds big, but in comparison to Soviet losses, that's not a very high price in men. On the other hand, officers, German officers, are disproportionately becoming wounded or killed, with some units reportedly losing half of their officers by this point, which presents major issues for command and control. Losses in tanks and other material have been far more severe, and it would not be an exaggeration to say that many German units that began as mechanized were now infantry units with a few trucks or tanks on hand. Of course, that was true even more so on the Soviet side. Though with the Germans, even at a high level, their mechanized losses were significant. On July 21st, Panzer Group 3 reported that only 42% of their tanks were combat ready. 27% had been completely destroyed, while another 31% required repair. There was very little repair capacity in the field, so most of these tanks had to be shipped back to Germany to be repaired, and then shipped back to the front, where they could rejoin their units. On a strategic basis, this episode saw German plans begin to fundamentally shift. Planners at the highest level conceded, if only tacitly, that Germany lacked the resources for all three army groups to succeed. Some thought that the Red Army was already beaten, and that diverting the Panzer Groups to the north and south would see German forces easily roll up the flanks. Hitler himself was reported to have gone back and forth between jubilantly declaring victory in the east and openly opining that the war might last until 1942. The decision to divert the Panzer Groups cannot be traced to a single cause. Supporters wanted to avoid Army Group Center becoming overstretched. For Hitler, part of it was a desire to seize Ukraine. Hitler also grew to doubt the ability of his armies, or at the very least his generals, to quickly close large encirclements. Instead, he began to favor smaller pockets, where the enemy could be reliably annihilated. But this came with its own problems. As Franz Halder, head of the OKH, wrote, If striking at small local enemy concentrations becomes their sole objective, the campaign will resolve itself into a series of minor successes. Pursuing such a policy would eliminate tactical risks. The result would be that we use up our strength, expanding the front in width at the expense of depth. Essentially, this was a conflict between small guaranteed successes and large and uncertain outcomes. Whatever more we could say, and there was plenty more, the choice was made. By the most optimistic predictions, the Panzer Group could not be reassembled in Army Group Center until September. The Germans would have a chance to resolve supply issues in the area, while the Soviets would be hard at work preparing defenses. With a move to the flanks, we see if Moscow can hold on to the industry of Leningrad and the resources of Ukraine. And if they can't, their prospects for continuing the war, let alone winning it, become much, much slimmer. That about does it for today. If you have suggestions or comments on the podcast, feel free to email me at apocalypseintheeast at gmail.com. If you're listening to this somewhere that has reviews, give it a review, an honest review, though five stars would be nice, but honesty would be nicer. As usual, links to sources are in the description, as is an animated map. 
Until next time, I'm Harry, and I'll talk to you later.